Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by our editor at large, Ann Thompson, out of Los Angeles. And we've got a lot to talk about today, Ann, but I want to start with a new movie that is both opening and just opened the Los Angeles Film Festival, The Book of Henry, which uh, is just already notoriously canned from every possible direction and We've both seen it, and I think what's sort of fascinating is that we're both sort of at once sympathetic to this movie and also somewhat in agreement with the... I read uh, your review, Eric, which which I thought nailed it, you know, perfectly well, and you gave it the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I would say that, that what's wrong with this movie is that it, A, it's based on a screenplay that's 20 years old... Well, that, I don't know if that's necessarily what's wrong with the movie. Well, <laughs> movies can be. I was talking to to one. I was talking to a distributor at the opening night party. I mean, movies can. They are zeitgeisty. You know, they they are part of their time, and there's something. Uh, I think. I think many clearly they had a problem, and they did. You know, they threw Michael Giacchino at it, the composer. They had really good actors. They worked and worked and worked to try to make it work. It never wor- would work. Well, it has too many genres of, mixed up and, think, and not enough of a consistent tone to on, tell though, us where we are. Before we, before we get into that, I mean, I think it's worth laying out a little bit about this movie that when I got invited to, to a screening, it, it came equipped with one of those requests that we not spoil all these different kinds of things. And I won't spoil too much because I actually think there is some value in seeing this movie because it's sort of baffling that it got made, and yet at the same time, I think it's sort of a fascinating experiment because it starts off as a, as a very straightforward, sentimental story about this hyper-intelligent 11-year-old kid, his single mom, played by Naomi Watts, and uh, just sort of the life that they have. He helps her around the house. He's sort of a surrogate dad to, to his, uh, his younger brother, and yet somewhere along the way, it turns into Rear Window, and it becomes this really dark thriller about the next door neighbor who seems to be a child abuser and what they plan to there's do about also, that. There's also child cancer in there. Yeah, no, that's, that's the, you've the got, sentimental It turns into a, a sort of, you know, soap opera. And then yeah. at the very end, the last third, you have this thriller yeah. where Naomi Watts is getting a gun and all sorts well, of crazy no stuff no is going on. But, but, yeah, I mean, that's what, what sort of... But so I, so I you're like asked that. to go along with all of these different things, but, but he doesn't establish... Are we in a fantasy? Is this heightened reality? Well, that's, I think, is yeah, this real? Is this fiction? Where the hell are we? I think that the, there is, I mean, look, when, when David Lynch plays with tone and genre or whatever, it's it's because of that. It's because it's a it's this Lynchian thing where, you know, the boundaries are more porous and the tones can kind of give way to different kinds of experiences. But this is a movie in which it's actually disingenuous because you, you're, you're led to assume that it's a fairly straightforward narrative and then it becomes a different kind of fairly straightforward narrative and there's no real convincing uh, There transition. are some hairpin turns, let's yeah. put it that yeah, way. Exactly we're careening, careening down a, a roadway and, and not knowing where we're going. And I think that accounts for why... There are descriptions of screenings where the critics were laughing. People were laughing or, at my screening, absolutely. Yeah, they didn't laugh at the L.A. Film Festival, there but of course that was people. more like a cast and crew Yeah, premiere. exactly. It's, it's tricky. And the thing is, what, what I found, it wasn't, to me, the flaw of the movie is not where it goes, but that it doesn't earn the way it goes there. That the Naomi Watts character goes through this fairly dramatic transition 
to somebody you would not expect her to be in the first act. And even though she's actually quite good in, in the role... I well, don't the actors the, are not at fault. The little boys are both really yeah, good. Their performances well. are fine The person the who's terrible just, is Sarah Silverman. Well, I almost I, turned I against feel, the director more because of that. Every, <laughs> every decision they made, the I costume, the le language, who yeah. she was, everything about that character I rejected. I, I feel for Sarah Silverman I, I, because she... She just doesn't seem to be able to find her stability in the movies the way that she's such a confident comedian. You know, the. I, I well, just part of it is the way that part was written. Again, bet, it was. And exactly. also, here's the thing. Do you, do you really want, you know, a, a sex abuse drama to be, you know, it, this feels so overdone now. It is well, so, but I mean, the, uh, it, we've, we've been here before. I don't, but the thing is that the, the sex abuse is essentially a red herring. I mean, it is the MacGuffin of what becomes a Hitchcockian film. And I, and I, so that didn't bother me as much as just the way in which it's, it's a very audacious concept. I see why somebody read that script and was like, whoa, this could be a really wild genre experiment it just isn't confidently done it's like okay. but the other thing the, the other thing we're doing here is 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 that i do believe that critics often even though they think they're forward-minded that critics do not like to be confused and they do not like to be surprised that much well what you're talking Unless, about is wait, the pile, wait and so right? i'm explaining why there has been this extraordinary phenomenon of everyone piling on Colin Trevor, and what it, what it, it, I think one of the reasons they're doing it is that maybe there is almost a little bit of Schadenfreude where he got successful a little too fast and jumped from safety not guaranteed, which by the way I thought was terrific and I really liked a lot, which also played around with some genre mixing. You know, it was a fantasy, it was sci-fi, it was, uh, you know, a guy with mental illness maybe, or is he, and you know, it, but they pulled it off. This one, clearly they don't pull off, but he also moved on to do Jurassic World, and then he also has been anointed the one of the ambassadors of the new Star Wars universe. Well, so now, you get about you it. You can't ignore that context, because I think what's notable about it is that it was so jarring to go from Safety Not Guaranteed, which I thought it was okay. I mean, it, it was okay. It was, I agree that it plays it around It was one genre. of the hits of that year's Sunday. There's no question. And it, Mark Duplass was terrific it, it, in it, and it I, helped I mean, to break on, out Aubrey on, Plaza. Hang on, and though. Jake. But the, the, the point is, is, is not so much that Safety Not Guaranteed was this great movie, so much as this, you know, it was dwarfed by what he did next. And when you look at Book of Henry, it really is a sophomore feature. It makes more sense as the next step. But it would have been perhaps less likely if he had done that as his second film that it would have led to the kind of studio gigs that he has now. It doesn't necessarily say to me, oh, you know, he's now completely screwed making the third Star Wars movie in the current trilogy. I mean, th these are just totally different scales, different kinds of expectations. And this was a project that it has so such a quirky, you know, long gestating backstory. So it seems... Right, like, and he yeah. also was working with Focus Features. He also, for whatever reason, responded really personally to this material, and he used whatever um, 
uh, extra boost he had in his career to get something made that no one wanted to make for a really long time. And he went ahead and, and did it inside that universe and did not pull it off. And it's so, I saw him at the event and he looked like, you know, cause it, cause it literally between the time that the movie started and when the movie ended, this flood of negative reviews, which he knew were coming, uh, hit the, uh, the world. But we should talk about that because I think I saw after the film screened and it, before the reviews dropped, you could feel this this sort of bubbling anticipation of the pans and the exactly pans because we talked but, about it at an at a editorial meeting. But, Everybody but, said it was one of the worst movies ever made. Well, well, they were anticipating. It was just so ludicrous, and and I think people, it's it's all there's this naive tendency to kind of heap on to something that doesn't work. I mean, maybe the problem is that we're not looking at the bigger picture here, which is that there's so much junk out there. This movie doesn't work, and we've, I think, made a pretty good argument for why. But, but it's ambitious, well, and he deserves to have credit for I, being I, ambitious. I said as much, and, but, but I think that the, the critical pylon, to some degree, tells you something about just how much people were waiting for the opportunity to to go wild on this thing like it's just the craziest movie i've ever seen how could somebody do something like this i mean i've seen a lot well of he would have had crap. to have threaded the needle very carefully and executed it perfectly in every single way to make it work and i don't think he had he knew how to how to accomplish that but but the but the other the i just don't think that that we should be so mean and horrible to someone who tried to take chances on, on a piece of material that they could, presumably he saw in his mind how to make it work. And well, I'd be very curious to I, see what that movie I think was. There, there, there's two different things here. One is the mob mentality around the movie. The other is mob mentality around the director. I mean, a plea for compassion for the director. I think that's like a separate thing. You know, like if somebody just makes really crappy movies, I'm going to be talking about the crappy movies. But they are ready to throw him out of well, Star I, Wars now. Yeah, you know? I mean, I Which, think that... And that, let's make a point about that. If you're making a Jurassic movie, if you're making a Star Wars movie, there do not have any doubts that these are incredibly controlled efforts. If you're making a Marvel movie, there are people in charge. You are following orders. <laughs> you can have some degree of, of on-the-set... Um, uh, adjudication over how uh, uh, you know some kind of costume or or, or performance or, or some details, but finally you're part of a team effort. In any case, I think what's what's notable here is that Colin Trevorrow's transition into the studio realm has become sort of symbolic of a trend of sorts. You know, this opportunity for the new coming incoming indie talent to just jump right into Hollywood, and you see it now with John Watts, who's got the Spider-Man movie, saw it with Mark Webb, who did the Spider-Man movie. They're going to be some, they're going to be some guns, you know, aimed at, at them, too. On the other hand, when Patty Jenkins delivers with Wonder Woman, everybody's rooting for well, her. That was and that season. is a heartening thing. She, I mean, it, it's, it's true that she had only made, you know, this other movie a, a while back, but it, uh, she had done... She'd been around for a while. She's a little bit more seasoned, too. I think it's it's sort of disingenuous to say like this like Patty Jenkins was some newcomer and you know who then got this big studio gig. She was sort of hardly, up hardly. To it. She yeah. was more of someone who should have gotten the big studio gig 
15 years ago. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and and now she finally uh, got it. But, Made up for right, lost time. Moving on, you guys have uh, BAM well, coming before, up. Well, before, let's talk about Los Angeles Film Festival first because Book of Henry opened it. And now okay, all so we basically have a festival in transition, um, and um, a new a new festival. You know, so the Stephanie Elaine era is over, um, and she's the one who based. She's a well known Hollywood producer, uh, worked on um, Dear White People and also and you know Boys in the Hood and all sorts of other movies. And she really focused on diversity and first time filmmakers and world premieres and you know anybody who's not white should be in her festival, basically. And, and, and unfortunately, they moved a lot. You know, there was a transition from the, the west side to downtown and then another one to Culver City last year. And the attendance between last year and the year before went from 90,000 to 40,000. Wow. So they that's Painful. one of the reasons why Elaine and her team are out. And uh, this new director, Jennifer Cochis, was promoted from being a senior programmer and creative director to being director of the festival. And she's definitely moving it back into the direction of playing some of the hits from other festivals, bringing in some foreign language, bringing in some uh, other things. And still very diverse, still a lot of first-time filmmakers, still a lot of um, people from, you know, L.A., but uh, not as not as myopic as the other and certainly looking for quality and hopefully uh, more attendance as they move the venues around the city and try to pull audiences from all over. I mean, the thing that, that's confusing to me is just a summer film festival is just not an easy sell. and It's, it's a bad time in the yeah, calendar. It just seems like if you want to do a good festival, AFI Fest, I've, I've been to Los Angeles Film Festival, I've been to AFI Fest, AFI Fest still clearly has a very specific They're purpose. in the awards calendar, yeah, exactly. they're the last step but, for but it's a number of movies that. from Selma to American Sniper yeah, that but, just hadn't been finished yet. But then the rest of the lineup is also kind of cool because you have the you know range of, of uh, international cinema that's played around that's finally getting a chance for they're LA. They're very, very well curated. The AFI Fest really works and I, I'm a big fan of that festival. And the LA Film Festival, since I've been here, has never quite found its niche, partly because of the calendar. And they keep trying to find some reason to exist. I'm so mean. I'm being so mean. But um, they do, you know, there are some leftovers that uh, haven't been played other other places. And Michael Nordine, uh, one of our L.A. writers, um, looked at some of the films that he thought might be worth looking at. And uh, when I interviewed, so there's a story with the 10 best films of, of the L.A. Film Festival. And then when I interviewed Jennifer, she suggested that this, um, I think it starts on Friday, um, that we have um, uh, Vincent Grashaw, uh, who you may right. remember from sure. Bellflower uh, era. Bellflower. He was a yeah. producer who's directed in one movie, and this is another movie called And Then I Go, written by Brett Haley of I'll See You in My Dreams fame and starring Melanie Linsky. And then uh, another one that she suggested people might uh, check out is uh, it stars Nick you know the Game of Thrones guy uh, Nicholas Custer uh, Valdau and it's basically uh, a, a gang East LA thing called shot collar which which might play well but but the, you know we'll see we'll see if any surf you know the problem at this festival is so many of the films just sort of play and disappear partly because they only get to play once and there's right. no buzz that builds I yeah. still don't understand and, this and logic it, and, and the, yeah, this is a problem 
that, that a lot of festivals have is when, when they don't establish their identity in a way that, that is respected by the industry. If you have world premieres, you're not doing them any favors because I don't think a lot of buyers are like, oh, i got to go check out all these Los Angeles Film Festival movies to see if there's something there that could be a big hit for me or something like that. So that's part of the reason why they kind of fade to the, to the background. And, you know, let me talk about BAM Cinema Fest because I think the contrast is telling. This is a, a summer series of sorts that's been ongoing for a number of years at, at the BAM Cinematheque. And it's really come into its own in some ways because there's a sense that it is a curated best of the best of American indies from Sundance and South by to a large degree and giving them a different sort of platform, launching them into the the New York market in some cases, but there are, there are also some discoveries there. And, and I think what's kind of cool about that is that for most of the audience, all of these movies are new. And even if they're not, it's providing them with a fresh context. So, you know, Gemini, Aaron Katz's film, which is opening the festival, this played out of competition at South by Southwest. Neon picked it up, and now it's it's getting a totally different profile. By by, even though it's actually interesting, because it's in a very LA movie, and could have been it could have gotten a nice boost from playing at the Los Angeles Film Festival. Interesting. It winds up opening Band Cinema Fest more because it's Aaron Katz is a great filmmaker for people who are paying attention to American independent cinema, who has a very unique kind of style of telling stories, and this is a series that supports that kind of filmmaking. So you also have. Columbus, which was in the next section at Sundance. You have uh, Landline as a, as a kind of a centerpiece screening. You have Bitch, which was this really wild midnight movie at Sundance. And then you have this, um, the, one of the films is playing as a centerpiece as a world premiere. It's called El Septimo Dia. It's um, Jim McKay's first film in like a dozen years. This is the guy who made our song, which played at Sundance a while back. And then he kind of just went to TV. And he's made a really nice small movie about Mexican immigrants in Brooklyn that I think it's going to play really well at this festival because it's just such a good New York movie. At a bigger festival, say it went to Sundance, it would maybe get a little buried. So they're starting to experiment a little bit with the programming where they're opening it up to some discoveries, but also just providing a, a kind of general statement on the state of American independent film so you can see how... There, you have a summer festival that knows its place in a way and is evolving, but isn't trying to be, say, a, a huge place for a range of new movies because it just doesn't make sense to do that unless, you know, you want to actually put a ton of money into something and try to supplant some of the other stuff that's out there, which is just shooting yourself in the foot at this point because it's such a crowded calendar. So I think the contrast, especially these, both of these festivals started at the same day, you know, the contrast couldn't be more extreme. And, you know, I feel for a lot, the L.A. Film Festival and, and, and the L.A. film scene because I feel like maybe... Well, it feels like they're competing with each other, yeah, in fact. I, I, and, I'm sure. and the BAM is coming out on top in some cases in terms of getting some of the auteur filmmakers that you would want. Exactly. But in that way, the L.A. Film Festival would have to reestablish its quality bona fides because it's being judged on its recent failures. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is the other problem is after you've dealt with um, just a bad reputation for a while. You know, people recognize you know. that they basically weren't programming for quality, and that is just a big problem. Well, it happened to Tribeca, too. You know, all these kind of subpar movies getting red carpet premieres because they had famous people in them. That just became the narrative. I mean, how do you rescue Even Sundance like steered in that direction briefly, and then it got corrected. Right. Um, okay. And then, uh, so, so there are some movies... Um, 
that are opening and there's also been a believe it or not even though um it seems early there's there's some awards activity going well, on we, which is sort of about, strange yeah i want to talk about one movie opening this week i don't know if you think it's got real awards prospects or not but pixar tends to on some level or another so cars 3 is coming out and i have to tell you I've never been a huge fan of this series, like a lot of people, and I really liked it. I, I mean, that I is just, weird. Yeah, that I, is really weird. I would never have pegged you <laughs> to like Cars 3. I, I have to say that I'm a huge Pixar fan, as everybody knows, and I can see that this is going to be a huge hit, and, and I can see that it played uh, pretty well with the group, although I couldn't help wondering how children would relate to this story of, about aging and relevancy and staying in tune with uh, the younger generation. It was, it was a very strange old person's, I mean, Owen Wilson is hardly old, but in the world of racing or in athlete, if you're an athlete of some kind, you know, to be at the end of your uh, uh, lifespan is a, def- a difficult thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think, what what struck me is okay. So let me let me modify it a little bit. I really liked it. I, I wasn't over the moon about it. I guess my my expectations were pretty low. But what I, what I thought worked for this movie is that you have to acknowledge up front what you're doing here. And I think this movie doesn't try to be a comedy, and so it doesn't force that in. The second one was such a goofy espionage slapstick kind of a mishmash of stuff, and and this one is more kind of nostalgic for a lost time. It's about getting older. And then this feminist element comes into it later on because there's this female car character who's a trainer who winds up being more of the, the main it's character. It's about empowering, realize. you know, Some, someone who's somebody insecure. Somebody made, made the case that male critics, myself included, overread the feminist empowerment here. Because I agree the, with the, that. The, the I, when I finally got to it, after having been sold on that storyline, I was sort of like, huh? Because is this it, really what well, this movie is about? It, it, I don't also, think so. The woman character is still sort of empowered by the man. Very supportive, but, but again, very enabled, but, very driven by the male. But, I, but the reason why that, to me, I still feel like that's, that works in context is because Lightning McQueen was the main character of this series. So it starts out as his story and they pass the baton. This is why it was so jarring in Mad Max Fury Road when you're like, wait, Furiosa is more the main character here. You know that that sort of switch. That was fine with me. Yeah, no. It's, I, to me, there's something similar going on here, which is that it's almost like the Trojan horse in a way. And, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily the ideal. You know, Brave is a, a better story of than a female empowerment in that respect. But I, I do think that there is some progressive element that works well in the context of the narrative. Oh, they're talking about mentoring, and they're talking about passing exactly. the baton, and they're talking about giving, and all of that is good, and, and I think it works as a storyline. But I will say I was just fairly bored. I wasn't bored by the fact that I got to go to the Cars 3 premiere and go, go on all the Disney rides. You know, that was fun. But I found the movie itself to be a bit on the dull side. Well, uh, it's not one of the exciting Pixar films. No, it's, it, it's not a... But a, it's interesting And as good now, as the animation was, again, I mean, there's some great racing, there's some great animation, yeah, obviously. Yeah, no, the, the racing is well done. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, an, it, it's got some dynamic sequences, but it's, it's a sleepier, more, I would say, even more intellectual movie in some ways than it is anything else. And, and that's notable because it's, it doesn't 
it's not going for big gestures, but but I think it works in a very contained way. Now, is it going to work commercially in a big way? Is it going to carry it into award season? I guess that's a that's a tougher sell on some level. I mean, is the animation branch of the Academy going to want to appreciate how visually accomplished this movie is when, as you say, it's not going to be probably the most riveting piece of animation that you'll see this year. I mean, uh, do you think that given Pixar's track record with Oscars that this one is... Well, uh, Toy Story 3 was uh, a huge, huge improvement. Let me put it another way. Toy Story 1 was an amazing movie. Toy Story 2 was an amazing movie. And Toy Story 3 was an incredible movie. And it just went on beyond anything you could have expected. Incredibly emotional. Incredibly surprising. I mean, just one of the great screenplays you could imagine. Michael Arndt worked on it and so on. I would suggest that this is hardly awards material and and for all, for all sorts of reasons that it doesn't reach the bar that Toy Story 3 reached which you I, I think I think sequels are are difficult and and Cars 3 is not going to be I don't think unless it's a terribly weak field so let's uh, uh, let's let's look at some of the other award stuff going on because uh, as as you said before there even though it's summer and perhaps a bit on the early side a bunch of stuff is starting to build up, and, and things have screened already that uh, yeah. we can actually say or have, have have a chance at different kinds of traction. Yeah, no. What's year. interesting? What's interesting is that they had all right. So they had the big uh, premiere for the Big Sick, which of course debuted in. Um, Sundance and was one of the breakouts of Sundance and we all sort of piled on it and said this could be an awards contender and I went to see it again at the premiere here and went to the Amazon party afterward which was like a hot industry party with all sorts of people there you know working the room uh, but here's the deal I do believe that it is an Oscar contender even though it's an odd one it is not an obvious one it's a rom-com I mean that's not usually in effect, but it has a tragic element, and it's all because it, it, this woman that he falls in love with is the 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 Kumail Nanjiani um, true life romance with the woman who absolutely Emily Gordon, who wrote the movie with him, uh, is the the character they fall sick and is played by Zoe Kazan, and it's all about leaving his culture, and it's all about uh, in order to marry the woman he loves. So it's a very long, you know. It's so funny and so beautifully calibrated at every turn. And I give Judd Apatow and Michael Showalter, uh, the director, a great deal of credit for, for making it sing right, the so, way it does. So, so what is the awards? Well, what, what Holly Hunter about? and Ray Romano are both extraordinary in supporting roles as the parents. And I would suggest that Kumail Nanjiani gets in because of... But that's a tricky well, one him and because his wife it's a together, comedy. You're saying, and you're he's saying a comedian. A, so you're saying Kumail... As a writer, a, I think they definitely get in. Yeah. And as a best picture potentially, and as best actor for Camille, that Camille would be Nanjiang. remarkable. I mean, this is a guy who's been very much uh, appreciated by the the comedian world. I mean, I, I remember. But it's a dramatic and ago. a comedic performance. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. The, the idea of that working in his that much in his favor. In his favor, yeah. yeah I mean, the they have to do again. It's Amazon and uh, Lionsgate, and they're going to have to do everything right all the way down the line, and we shall see. But um, 
it's a long road, but I bet it does well. That's step number one. I bet I have to assume it's going to be successful, even I mean, in our so very challenged ways. marketplace. So, so many ways in which this movie can be successful, being released by by you know the company that just bought Whole Foods that can spend every which direction, <laughs> but also spending you know, does not necessarily a hit. Yeah, rate, no, but I but see. I think what what that means to me is that they can experiment with a lot of different markets for this movie. It's a crowd pleaser that a lot of people will want to go see, but it also appeals to you know, there, there's a there's the Pakistani American experience at the root of this movie that is an, no question. There's an underserved audience of uh, you know immigrant communities that can relate to some of those things. He's totally, totally. So, I, I I really am am excited about watching it unfold. And then there's a movie that's opening today, which I caught up with called Maudi, which um, is a little tiny uh, movie that was shot in Newfoundland. Uh, based on a true story about uh, this sort of uh, wi- wizened, arthritic woman, twisted woman, who becomes a primitive painter and gets together with this strange, reclusive guy. And they are played by Sally Hawkins, the great Sally Hawkins, and Ethan Hawke. And they are amazing in this movie. I, I uh, and it I have Telluride. to recommend it. These yeah. are great performances. It's one of those where it's, I was at Telluride and I missed it. The buzz wasn't strong enough for me to prioritize it. And now it's just, I just never got around to it. But it, now, it, I had heard that they gave amazing performances. And I certainly respect both actors. And they're both transformed in this movie. You really don't recognize them. So I, I have to give them a lot of credit. Um, and then there, was an <laughs> then there were some date changes that came down. The Weinstein Co. dated the current war, which I saw some footage from at Cannes, which is basically the follow-up uh, for Afonso Gomez Rojon, um, you know, who is uh, one of those indie directors that had, you know, me, Earl, and the Dying Girl that people liked, but it didn't do that well at the box office. But it's he's a good director, and he has um, Benedict Cumberbatch versus. Michael Shannon in the war between Westinghouse and Edison. And it's, it, I saw the footage. It looks really good. And it's coming in December, December 22nd. And then they dated uh, Untouchables, which is a remake of the French movie that was a Weinstein import and a big hit. And it stars Brian Cranston in, in, in the role of the guy in the wheelchair. Oh, God. And Kevin Hart oh, as God. the one who comes in to help him. Oh, my God. I, I thank you for pushing that into next year so we don't have to worry about talking. 2018, oh not going to be a factor. And then the other one that they put up uh, 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 as first-time screening last night in L.A., uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. So Matt Reeves was there for this very first screening. And the, basically it was the awards pundits, that universe. And we were all there, and he was working the room and talking to us and filling us in on this three-year struggle to get this very ambitious movie made with Weta and it's Joe Letary, the VFX master and you have Andy Serkis as Caesar and you continue the story of the war yeah. between the apes and I the like apes. this series I can't wait I'm seeing I it love I, I love these wait. movies and this yeah. one is not dis- a dis- this is this is an advance it's cool. extraordinary I can't wait I mean look uh, I'm with Transformers the last night right around the corner I can't wait to see a summer movie that actually seems like it's uh, something worth talking about so uh Hopefully, so there's an embargo yeah. on it. We yeah. can't go too much further, but well, um, and I, I, I got a kick so. out of hearing some of the, um, you know, the behind the scenes details of, of, you know, what is the water CG? Is the horse real? Is, you know, how is the horse real? Capture? We need to know. <laughs> yeah. 
I love that stuff. <laughs> so next week, uh, I guess we'll maybe get a chance to dig more into the ape situation because we'll have, I'll have a chance to see it. And then the uh, an embargo-free world is one in which we can go into more detail. Maybe I'll tell you what I thought about Transformers, too, while I'm at it. But also Big Sick is going to finally come out. The Beguiled is going to come out. The Bad Batch is coming out. So, you know, it, it may be the, the dog days of summer, but at the same time, you know, we'll, we'll find plenty to, to dig through. And so, Speaking of The Beguiled, if you do go to the L.A. Film Festival, there's a double feature of The Beguiled and Lost in Translation with Sofia Coppola. There you go. You found so that some, might something be worth fun. checking out at, at L.A. Film Festival. Have a good week. Bye-bye.